One of the substitutes tonight, you know, you remember how y'all used to treat substitutes when you were in high school, okay? You moved around, you got in different places, you cut up. Well, that's tonight, so come on, bring it on. Uh, I serve as the men's equipping director, and uh, um, the good news is that you have a subject matter expert here uh, in me to talk about sin, okay? So I have studied sin carefully for a long time, and you know, my pal Derek Matthews, who's also, he's going to be teaching the doctrine of man, uh, he's way too young to understand all the ramifications of sin that I've experienced in my own life. Um, but here's the good news. He is seminary trained, okay? He is uh, uh, just getting ready to finish up uh, at Dallas Seminary this year. Woo. He's serving as a resident in our um, residency program, and he is going to uh, stay on to uh, help lead the equipping efforts in Plano. So y'all are going to be blessed. <laughs> yeah. Y'all are going to be blessed to have you know, somebody who knows what he's talking about. But with sin, hey, you know, we're all experts in that. And we'll have a lot of fun talking about that uh, as we go along. So uh, let me pray for us, and then I'll get Derek up here and we'll get rolling. Lord, thanks for these friends who have devoted a good Sunday night to learn more about you. And so, Father, uh, uh, thanks for the privilege of standing in the midst of a uh, uh, bunch of theologians. And so, Father, may uh, uh, the words we speak tonight be truth. May they bring you honor and glory, uh, keep us from error, and may we in all things uh, uh, learn more and more about uh, so great a salvation and what it means to follow hard after your son. So thanks for this time. Thanks for these friends. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Bobby. Uh, so it's kind of funny. I get to talk about uh, humanity, so how beautiful and awesome we are in God's mind and heart, and then Bobby's talking about sin, and so he'll talk about how awful you are. Uh, so we're kind of yin yin yang tonight. So, uh, hey, welcome. Like Bobby said, my name is Derek Matthews. Uh, just a quick life story on me. Uh, uh, grew up in Houston, went to school in a little school in College Station called Texas A&M. Hallelujah. All right. There's always a few in a room, and I've just alienated half of you, so sorry about that. Um, met my wife, who is also in this class, which is right there. So, yeah, she's awesome, and my better half. And uh, we came up to Mansfield, which is South Arlington, uh, for a number of years. I served uh, everywhere from uh, middle school boys pastor, and then by the end, I was an associate pastor over teaching students and communication. And so I can't say no to certain things, uh, namely that, um, and that kind of actually led me into a season of just overactivity and, quite frankly, burnout. Uh, in fact, about this time last year, um, I remember praying to God, saying, God, if this is ministry, I don't want it. Um, I was at a church that was just really, honestly, unhealthy, uh, doing more things that any human being really should do at any given time. And uh, that was just kind of my life for a long time. Uh, and by God's grace, he brought me here to be a part of the residency program. Um, and so this past week, uh, we had what was called our church leader conference. How many of you all went, volunteered, prayed for, were a part of it in any way? Yeah. Um, unbelievable time of just sharing God's vision, not for Watermark, but for the church. And so Todd and JP and everyone that were a part of that just did an unbelievable job just sharing the vision 
of God's heart for the local church. And, and I've been blessed to be a part of our residency program here because over the last year, I've gotten a church leader conference every week. Um, and so I'm at a point now in which I just, where a year ago, I just said, God, I don't know if I want this. I'm going, God, I, I want nothing less than this. And so I'm grateful for Watermark. I'm grateful for the elders. I'm grateful for Todd. And I'm grateful for you. Uh, who have decided for the course of 10 months to give up uh, one, uh, one Sunday for two hours and, and to study Grudem, uh, you know, that light read that you have to do each you know, month. Uh, I'm grateful that y'all are doing that because the health of this church does not reside solely in the elders, does not reside solely in the staff. As my wife and I have been a part of it, we've been so encouraged that on all levels, uh, all of us are pursuing the Lord, and it just warms my little heart. Uh, so, so thank you for being here, and thank you for being a part of just what God's doing here. Um, and so last month, y'all talked about theology proper, uh, the Trinity, the Godhead. And so I don't know if you've noticed this so far, but as you move through Grudem, these aren't just individual silo topics. These all build upon one another. And so it's very important that we studied the scriptures, and then we studied uh, the Trinity, and then now we're studying humanity. It's very important that we've actually gone through this order. In fact, John Calvin uh, had this quote to say, he says, our wisdom in so far as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. Without knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. And without knowledge of God, there is no knowledge of self. And so somebody put that into their own words. What, what is Calvin saying right here? You can't know who you are until you know God first. Yes. And then what's the other part of it? You can't know God until you know yourself. He says that these two things are inseparably linked. That, that we know God as we know ourselves, and we know ourselves as we know God. The more we understand who we are, the more we can understand God. The more we understand God, the more we understand who we are. Um, and so that was one of the points that Grudem made if, if, as you read through the book. And I'm not going to ask you if you read it or not. I'm just going to trust that you did. And, uh, and as he was making that point, just saying, hey, the more you understand who you are as a human, the more you can wrap your mind around who God is. And so it's very important that we understand not just who God is, like we talked about last time, uh, but that we understand who we are as those made in his image. Uh, because when we get that idea wrong, what it means to be a human wrong, it leads to genocide every single time. So if you think through the course of human history, every time you've seen this massive level of human genocide, it begins with the concept that there is this hierarchy between huma uh, humanity, that there are certain individuals that are more human than other individuals. And all you have to do to commit genocide is to rally a group of people together and say, hey, you're on the A team, and there's another group that's on the B team. Because if you're not made in the same Im image, if you're not made in the same likeness, it's really easy to destroy you. And so if you look throughout history, you see in 18th century America, the shame of our country, they came up with this idea that people of a certain race were only three-fifths human. Why did they come up with that idea? Because they wanted to usurp power. You see it later on in Nazi Germany. 
how do you commit genocide against a whole group of people, namely the Jews? You say that there is a certain race, there are certain select individuals that are on the A team and the Jews are on the B team. And in fact, because they're on this kind of B team, they're hindering us on the A team. And so what do you do? Let's just get rid of them. And you see it today in our genocide in our own country when it comes to the unborn, uh, that we have classified those in uh, the womb as less than human. Why? Because when they're less than human, we can do what we want with them. We're on the A team, they're on the B team, and they can't fight back. Every single time you miss the mark on what it means to be human, it'll inevitably lead to classism, to a hierarchy in humanity, and given enough time, genocide. So this is an important thing to get right. And so I'm going to spend some time just talking about the beauty of humanity, the beauty of God's design for humanity, and then Bobby's going to, then we're going to take a little bit of a break, and then we're going to come back, and Bobby's going to spend some time talking about the brokenness of humanity. So I get beauty, he gets brokenness. So uh, you'll like me and feel bad after him. Uh, just kidding. Uh, so we're going to be just throughout Scripture. We're going to focus a lot on our time, uh, just in Genesis 1 through 2. Um, But as we kind of go through this, we're going to be talking just about who man is in kind of four different categories. We're going to be talking about the purpose of man. We're going to try to define humanity. We're going to talk about man as being male and female. And then we're going to talk about how divinity meets humanity in the person of Christ. And so that's kind of our big overarching view of what we're going to talk about. I'm going to ask some questions periodically, so be alert. Um, And so first up, let's just talk about the purpose of man. Why did God create man? He created man, not out of a need in himself, but rather to manifest his own glory. He created man to manifest his glory. I remember back in college, I had to read this poem uh, that was written back in the 1970s, and it was by this guy who was trying to um, simplify the Genesis 1 account. And so it was a poem called The Creation by a guy named James Johnson. And in the opening line where we're used to hearing, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, he said this, And God stepped out on space, and he looked around and said, I'm lonely. I'll make me a world. Which is really bad grammar, but also theologically awful. So I'm going to ask you, why is that statement wrong? Let me read it again. And God stepped out onto space, And he looked around and said, I'm lonely, I'll make me a world. There's two major things wrong with that. He isn't lonely. Bingo! Well done! Gold stars! You guys are great. I don't have any gold stars, but metaphorically, if I did, you would get one. Congratulations. Uh, So yeah, so the two ideas are this, that, that God was not lonely... And we know that because last time we talked about the Trinity, that God from eternity past for all of existence existed as Father, Son, and Spirit. Perfect unity, perfect equality, perfect distinction, perfect in all regards, not lonely. In fact, if we were to believe in a lonely God, that is a small God. And so God was not lonely. And yes, the second part of the why it's wrong is... He didn't step out into space. It was already there. Um, And so why did God create? Well, I would argue that God creates because God's a creator. 
that God creates because that's in his very nature, that he is a creator God. And he's doing so to manifest his glory. Isaiah 43, 7 says this, Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and I made. He tells us explicitly, Isaiah 43, 7, I made you for my glory. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, I want you to think last week, or last, last month, when we talked about the attributes of God. What are some of the attributes of God that you just go, man, that's the one that when I think about God, it warms my heart the most. What are some of those attributes? Sovereign? Father? Compassionate? Absolutely. Merciful? Great. What? Good? What's that? Loving. Yeah. So I want you to think about these attributes of God that we've talked about last time. There are certain attributes of God that before the creative count, he could manifest unto the Father, Son, and Spirit. There was love, there was goodness, there was kindness, that they did not need creation to display that. But how can God display grace, mercy, without an object to have grace and have mercy upon? How could God display the fact he's a creative God without creating? That that is one of the reasons God manifests himself, displays himself, shows off himself, because he's the greatest possible being. And if you're the greatest possible being in the existence of all things, then you show off, and it's not bad. It's a good thing. And so God, in his full character, manifests himself and decides to create. And so because of that, what's the purpose of our life? Well, if we are made for the glory of God... The purpose of our life is to glorify God. Yeah, it's not that hard. We glorify God, and I love this. It's through delighting in Him. Through delighting in Him. So before we get into the concept of what it means to obey Him and to serve Him and to even love Him, that that there is something about glorifying God that it's a delight, a pleasure in who God is. And so the Westminster Confession of Faith uh, which was a group of guys that got together in the 17th century and just said, hey, we want to we think through a bunch of questions of Scripture, and then we want to answer them solely in Scripture. So they would have really fit in well around here. Uh, their first question was, what is the chief end of man? And they said, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. John Piper said it this way, God is most glorified in you when you're most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in you when you work really hard? No. When you find your delight, your satisfaction in him. And so a part of what it means to be human is to find your satisfaction, your joy, not in your job, not in your success, not in your time, talents, and treasures, but in God. That's how we've been made and wired and designed. If you think about all those things that we pursue, they offer a snippet of what God actually provides. And so we often pursue, say, money. Money isn't evil, but it's the the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. But we pursue these things. Why? Because we think money, okay, money's going to offer me protection, comfort, uh, um, security. And God goes, hello, I offer those things. And I offer those things in the fullness. 
Sometimes we pursue certain relationships. We want to be accepted. We want to be valued. We want to, we want to be loved by someone. And God goes, hey, those things are good, but find it first in me. And so a part of what it means to be human is to find your full satisfaction. And the Lord, uh, Augustine, in the third or fourth century, said, hey, our, our souls are restless until they find their rest in God. Our souls are restless until they find their rest in Him. And so Colossians 1.16 says, Everything, all things were created in heaven and earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. Why do you exist? For Jesus Christ. That's why you exist. That's why everything exists. And so, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, I'm going to argue that humans are, beings are made in the image of God, and to define that any other way is to actually, to define it any other way will inevitably include things that are not humans and exclude those who are. And so the only proper way to define what a human being is, is a being made in the image of God. And so I want us to do a little exercise here. As you look at these false definitions, I'm going to read one and I'm going to ask you, why is that not a good definition if we just stop there? So humans are animals that have 46 chromosomes. Why is that not a good explanation? All right, other animals have 46. What about, what else? Some people don't. Down syndrome. So we've just alienated an entire group of people because we have narrowed the scope on an earthly level. All right? Humans are animals with opposable thumbs, right? Aggies? Yeah, gig them. All right? That's what it means to be human, be able to do that. All right? Humans are animals with opposable thumbs. Why is that not a good definition? Exactly. We got monkeys, now humans. And the pirate that lost both his thumbs is like, oh, I guess I'm out, you know? <laughs> All right? I got the wooden sticks now, and it just isn't going to work, right? So, yeah, you're now including individual or including beings that aren't and excluding that are, okay? Humans are beings that have the ability to process and define data. I heard it over here. <laughs> exactly. Computers can. So now we've just introduced things into humanity that aren't. Okay, last one. Humans have a concept of history. That's a good one. My dog doesn't know what happened at the Alamo. He's like, man, that was a great moment in our life. You know, like that. Why is that wrong? Thank you. Thank you. Dementia. Some people don't have that concept. Mentally handicapped. Now we just alienated those who are not, um, that don't have that ability. Any way that you define humanity outside of the image of God will exclude some and include others. So Genesis 1, 16 through 17, God says, let us, notice the plurality, notice the Trinity language, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So according to that passage, why were, we, why were we made? Outside of what we've already talked about, why were we made? To bear his image? Have dominion. We were made to have dignity and dominion. Dignity 
and dominion. Dignity because we are unique beings. We are unique creatures that have the image of God. And we have dominion over all God that created, all God created. So there's this idea that was circulating during the time that Genesis was written. And, and what would happen is individuals, kings, would have this large landmass. But since they couldn't be anywhere, they so decided that they would go. And wherever they would conquer, they would have a new village, a new town. They would have an image, an icon created in that town that would represent them. So imagine a statue that looked like that king. And the idea was as, as they looked at that king, they go, okay, that, that king has dominion and authority over us in our town. And so in like manner, God, who can be everywhere, has so chosen to create a being that would bear his image, bear his likeness, and he would put it in this thing called the earth. And he would say, have dominion, have authority. But instead of being a statue, he breathes life into it. And man became a living being. And he is the image bearer. He is the one that has dignity because he has the spirit of God breathed into him. But he's also the one who has dominion because God has so decreed it. And so the reason that we're not called to create an image of or a likeness of God in the Ten Commandments, we're not called to do that. It's because God's already done it. Thus, Hey, don't make an image or likeness of of me. Why? Because I've already done it. It's you. We are his statues. We are his statues that have come alive, and we have been called to have dignity, have dominion over the earth. And so with that, I did appreciate how, how Grudem kind of handled this idea. You can, dis, you can kind of break it into these other categories of moral aspects and spiritual aspects and mental aspects and relational aspects. But if you remember, as you read through Grudem, he kind of just goes, hey, to be made in the image of God means that you are God's representative. You are that statue that's been made alive. And so you can break it into these other parts. You can say, hey, we're moral beings, that we are morally accountable to God. My dog, Lulu, is not morally accountable to God. I don't care how many times she forgets where the bathroom is, all right? It's outside, all right? She's not morally accountable to God. She's morally accountable to me, but not God. We are. Uh, we have an inner sense of right and wrong. Romans 1 says that. Uh, there's been tests done that even infants, they're shown these little, this little puppet theater, and there's a good puppet and there's a bad puppet, and at the end they're, decide, they're, they're told, hey, which puppet do you want? These are infants. Before they can even understand language, they're just watching this thing play out. And all of a sudden they go, which puppet do you want? And nearly every single time they pick the good one. And we have this inner oughtness that we know right from wrong. We reflect God's goodness and character when we do right and his unlikeness when we do wrong. We're spiritual, we have spiritual aspects. Uh, simply put, uh, we have a spiritual life and we're immortal. You had a beginning. You don't have an end. You have a beginning. You do not have an end. That's crazy. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He says, you've never met an ordinary person. He says, you never talk to a mere mortal, but rather an immortal. It's immortals that we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and even exploit. All of us are destined for either immortal horrors, 
are everlasting splendors. I'm glad Jesus helped us to get to that last one, right? He did it all. So that we can have eternal, everlasting splendors. We are spiritual beings. Mental aspects. In our perfection, the way that we were made, we have reason and can think logically and can learn. We can use complex, abstract language. We're aware of the distant future. We reflect God in our creativity. We reflect God in our emotional complexity. We reflect God. Lastly, relationship aspects. We have a deep need for interpersonal relationships. We reflect God's nature in marriage. We reflect God's rule over all of creation. And so I don't want to spend too much time there because you end up dissecting every little thing. And that's why I just, I love what Grudem had to say about, hey, it comes back to this idea that we have been made in the image of God, which means that we have the right to, we, we have dignity and we have dominion. And so, Let's look through just kind of the meta-narrative. Because what you can do is, as you look, just look through the entire course of Scripture, you can always just kind of pull a, a thread. And as you pull a thread, you can actually track the entire story of Scripture through different threads. So you can track it through the idea of the Spirit of God, that God gave us the Spirit in creation, but then in Genesis 3, it says, from dust you were to dust you'll return. What did we lose? Spirit of God was knocked out of us. You see in Isaiah 59, 60, and 61 that God saw that there was nobody that was good, and so he was going to come, and he was going to be in the Spirit of God because the Spirit of God would be upon him to anoint him, to preach the good news to the poor, to do all these wonderful things. And then Jesus comes, and when Jesus comes, he preaches from Isaiah, uh, uh, Isaiah 59, 60, and 61, saying, hey, the Spirit of God is upon me. And then throughout the scriptures, he dies, he raises from the dead, and then read John 20. He walks in, and he breathes, and he says, hey, receive the Spirit of God. And I want you to wait, because the Spirit's going to dwell in you for uh, the day of Pentecost, and then throughout all of eternity. So you can pull different threads throughout scripture, and one of the threads that you can pull is the image of God. And so in creation, the image of God, uh, we just read it, Genesis 1, 26 through 27, uh, you just read about how God created us in his image and his likeness. And so those words, uh, which I'm not going to try to pronounce, um, tells, like I said, I'm not going to try to pronounce them. Um, uh, but those words mean likeness, similarity, not, not perfect image, but, but, a, but a, denotes something that's similar but not identical. The implication is that every being has intrinsic dignity. Every being has intrinsic dignity. Our culture doesn't believe that. In fact, back in 1979, uh, there was a guy named Peter Signer uh, from Princeton, Princeton University, and he believed that humans and animals were kind of on the same par, kind of the same thing, no big deal. And so he was asked one day about all this, and he finally just said this, and I'm quoting from a professor at Princeton University back in the 19, almost 1980s. It says, human, ba- human, baby, excuse me, human babies are not born self-aware or capable of grasping that they exist over time. They are not persons. Therefore, the life of a newborn is less valuable than the life of a pig or a dog or a chimpanzee. Those with physical disabilities are less valuable humans. Those with mental disabilities, uh, with less, th- those with mental disabilities uh, are less valuable than animals without disabilities. If I was given limited resources, 
and had to choose between a high-functioning, highly aware pig and a low-functioning, lowly aware human, the choice is simple. I choose the pig every single time. That's Nazi Germany. That's three-fifths rule. That's infants not being made in the image of God. It's awful. It's awful. God created us to be his image bearers. But in the fall, that image was distorted. But it was not lost. It was not lost. Man is not fully like God as he once was. His moral purity has been lost and his sinful character does not reflect God's holiness. Human beings still possess, though, the image of God. You see it in Genesis 9-6. There is some debate um, amongst scholars. I don't know how they read Genesis 9-6 that says you're still in the image of God. That's why you shouldn't kill people because they've been made in my image. Uh, some people think that it was completely lost. Um, no, the scriptures are very clear. We still possess the image of God, uh, but it has been distorted. It has been broken. The statue that's been placed is graffitied, broken, chipped. Uh, but the good news is not an image of God came, but the image of God came. And his name is Christ. The image of God. Not an, the. The perfect likeness, the perfect representative. The, 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 the one that has the mold of the Godhead. Jesus Christ. Um, and he is the one who is, as we trust him, as we behold his image, as Second uh, Corinthians 3.18 says, not by beholding a law, not by doing better, but by holding the image of God. It says, we with all with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So the more you behold the image of God, the more you are transformed more and more into the likeness of Christ. And so I remember thinking about this growing up of, of, of kind of why. Why would, I, why would I do that? If God loves me fully, 100%, nothing I can do, you know, can earn his love, nothing I can do, can lose his love, then why do I pursue him? Why do I want to be transformed into the image of Christ? When we think about it last time, and we talked about the Trinity, that the Father perfectly loves the Son, and the Son perfectly loves the Father. The Father perfectly loves me, not because of me, but because of Christ. He sees me as his Son. He sees me as Christ. But here's the problem. Is I don't see the Father the way Jesus sees the Father. And so the more I am transformed into the Son the more I see him rightly, the more I love him rightly, the more I want to celebrate rightly, the more I fulfill why I was made, which was to glorify God. At Christ's return, he's going to complete this restoration process. First John 3, 2 just says, hey, when, when he appears, we're going to be like him. We're going to see his face, and as we behold him fully, we'll be like him. The statue will be restored uh, fully and beautifully. And so in our last little bit, we're going to talk about um, this, uh, this exciting issue, uh, man, male and female. And so in Genesis 1.27, it says that God created, I want you to look carefully at this, word, at this verse. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male 
and female, he created them. Male and female, he created man. So man in scripture is humanity. The Hebrew word is actually Adam. It means a man, a human. So God created humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. Um, And so if you remember last time, the three words to rightly define the Trinity were unity, equality, and distinction. Unity, equality, distinction. And we as his image bearers, are rightly defined by unity, equality, and distinction. So unity, we have interpersonal relationships within plurality. Equality in personhood and importance, and in distinction and role and authority. So we're going to run through those real quick. First up is male and female are united. That God created human beings in such a way that we attain interpersonal unity a variety of sorts. Genesis 2.18 says, The Lord God said, It's not good for man to be alone. I'm going to make a helper fit for him. Why is it not good for man to be alone? I'm asking. We need personal relationships. Why? I thought that, I mean, that sounds like a good quiet time, right? You know, it's just Adam is out in nature with the animals. And yeah, I mean, like, think about like, what's a vacation for you? I just want to go out be amongst the animals, just communing with the Almighty. I mean, that's the perfect quiet time, right? So why is it not good for man to be alone? We need relationships, but why? Exactly. We are created in the image of God, and God, by His nature, is community, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so we, to represent Him, don't need to be married. We are the individual image bearers of God, but to fully and more fully represent him, God says, hey, imperfection before the fall, that's not good, bro. You're alone. You need a woman, you know? So, oh, I won't go down that path. But uh, <laughs> there's many reasons man alone is not good. Um, but yes, God is community. And what's interesting is we in our human hearts desire that type of relationship. And so does anyone know before the phrase in God we trust what our national motto was? It's on every dollar bill and the eagle is holding it between its beak. E pluribus unum. Gold star to anyone that knows what that is in Latin. Out of the many, one. Out of plurality, unity. Out of the many comes one. There's something ingrained in the human heart that loves diversity and unity, colliding. Because that's how we've been made. And that's what our maker is. Uh, The fact that he made a male and female represents that plurality between humanity. The next one is equality. Men and women are made equal in God's image and both reflect God's character in their lives. Both are equally important. Both are equally valuable And the implications is that we should honor one another. This is distinct amongst Christianity from other world religions. I mean, you just read the reports, just flip on your Apple news right now and just see the depravity that men are inflicting upon women because they have might and might is right. No, that is not right. All right. We have equality amongst men and women. And finally, and I want to get here, 
we have a distinction. Men and women have different roles within marriage and the church. Um, this is the one that's a little bit more tricky. Not tricky, but just within our culture. They're okay with we, us saying, hey, men and women are equal. They're okay with saying, hey, we're united. But once we say we're distinct, we run foul in their eyes. And so it's interesting that if you just do a quick search, uh, I, our, our culture doesn't even know where they land on this. Some want less distinction in the sexes. Hey, look, we're just humans. We're not male, female. We're just kind of one. You just kind of be whatever you want to be within that spectrum of humanity. Others go, no, we want more distinction. And so Facebook last year, had their, or two years ago, had, what, 51 new genders that they put on. And so notice the irony. When you, when you push away the Bible, you go, we're going to redefine male, female, gender, all this stuff. Let's figure this one out. They get 51, all right? On the other side of it, they go, no, 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 we don't want any. We just want one. And so even society can't agree because they, once you push away the scripture, I mean, anything goes, right? So they've come up with 51. I read somewhere where there's another 200. I mean, it's just like, and then, no, never mind. I'm not going to go down that path. We don't have time. Um, so in our culture, we, we do face this, but we also face this in our church, um, there are certain words that Scripture uses that, that, that are hard to hear sometimes. Uh, men sometimes have used their position not to exalt and not to sacrifice and not to serve, but to be domineering. And, and it's tragic. Um, in fact, as I was talking to my wife, I was like, man, this, this is the hard part. Uh, these words, not because of what Scripture says, the principles that it pushes out, but kind of how it works out in practice, especially in our culture that hears words like submission. And they go, ooh, no, I'm a doormat. I'm, I'm whatever they think. Or they hear like, you're the leader. And they go, that's right, I'm a leader. You know, it's awful. There's a distortion, remember, in the Imago Dea, even in those that are being redeemed. And so just with some principles before we move forward, God's, God is love and whatever he says is good. Even if we don't like it, we have to trust that it's good. Uh, we have to be careful with how we define these nuances and terms. And finally, principle is one thing. How it works itself out in practice is another thing. The distinction of roles between the husband and wife, the distinction of roles between uh, men and women within the church, the principle might be one thing, but how it works itself out might be another thing. And sometimes there might be some disagreements even at the table of God. We're looking at one another going, hey, I think it's this way, I think it's this way. And so there's good people on both sides of this. And so just with the distinctions, um, men and women, though unified and equal before God, have different roles within marriage and the church. Uh, The easiest way to define it, just to get your mind around it, is imagine like a beautiful vase, all right, and a dog bowl, all right? Both of them serve a similar function. They both are filled with water. They both have uh, roles within the household. They just have very distinct roles, all right? One of them you put in the center and you fill it with water and you put flowers in it, right? It's beautiful. The other is on the ground and dog slobber on it. (laughs) I'll let you figure out which one is the man and the woman in this analogy, but there's a there's a likeness and there's a distinction. And so the roles are meant, I'm just going to come back to this. You don't get anything out of this distinction part, 
The roles are meant to glorify Jesus. Your purpose in life is meant to glorify Jesus. And so let me just say it this way. In marriage, women, you glorify Jesus by mimicking Jesus within the Trinity. You glorify Jesus by mimicking Jesus within the triune God. Jesus willfully, joyfully submits to the Father. And you are called to, within marriage, willfully and joyfully submit to your husband. Men mimic Jesus within the confines of Jesus' relationship with the church. So men are called to sacrifice where women are called to submit. This is within marriage. And so I, I say it this way, that, that women, you are called to submit, to, to put your life under the, the love and protection of another. But men, you're called to die every single day. And that's a high bar. And so women are called to submit within the marriage, not to some guy on the street, not to your boyfriends, not to anyone else, but to your husband. And women and men submit to elders within the church. Um, So men, um, you're called to die. Have fun with that. Women, called to submit. But here's the thing. Both of those are designed to manifest who Christ is. And when we fully embrace that role, it's where life is found. And so we don't have time to... There's some argument within some theological circles of whether or not they... It was before the fall or after the fall that distinctions came into place. Um, it, it was before the fall, so we're done. Um, <laughs> there's a couple of things up here. Hey, Adam was created first, then Eve. Um, Eve was created as a helper for Adam because Adam needed help. Um, Adam named Eve. He named her woman. I am man, and you are, whoa, man, all right? God named the human race man and not woman. Um, even, even the names, you notice the, the, the unity and the distinction, man, woman. Uh, God spoke to Adam first after the fall. Uh, Adam, not Eve, is the representative of the human race. Uh, the curse brought distortion of previous roles, but not the introduction of new roles. When Jesus comes and Paul uh, says uh, in Ephesians 5, he doesn't go, okay, guys, we're back to no distinctions. No, he goes, women, Here's some things. And then men, you've got to get, the, you know, like there's still distinctions. Um, and yet Eve, uh, the curse brought these distortion roles. Eve, if you read the Genesis, the curse account, Eve gained this desire to rebel against Adam. Um, no amens, no men. Um, Eve gained a desire to rebel against Adam. Adam's authority became harsh rather than loving. The statue was broken. Um, and then Christ offers redemption and affirms the created order. Uh, the question for the church, um, egalitarians would say that there's no governing roles that is distinct to man. It's anyone can have any role. Um, if you were to read through First uh, Timothy 2, 11 through 15, Paul is going to stake his argument, not in the culture, but in creation. When he says that there, there is an order that God has put forward, uh, and it is male headship within the local church. So that's why our board of elders are all male. Because uh, we believe that, that that passage is rooted not in the culture of the day, which some people will argue, but rather in creation. Uh, I kind of ran through that fast because I really wanted to end on this. Um, if you do have your Bibles, uh, go to Psalms 8 and then kind of tag Psalms 2, 6, 
Hebrews 2, 6 through 9. So if you have your Bibles turned there or your Bible phones, scroll there. I'm just going to read this to you because this kind of just summarizes what we've been talking about. And then we'll take a little bit of a break. Psalms 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy of avenger. What he just said is what we talked about last month. God, you are amazing. You are holy other. You are infinitely separated from us. You are up there and we are down here. God, you are majestic in all the earth. And then in verse three, he's gonna talk about man's humility. He says, when I look at the, your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. He's not even saying, when I look at you, God, when I look at creation, he says, what is man that you're mindful of him? Or the son of man that you even care for him? And yet, because of God, not only are we made humble, but we're made dignified and we have dominion. Verse 5, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands and put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You see, as you read that passage, you see everything we just talked about, that God Almighty is big. He's above us. He's infinitely above us. And when we look at him and just look at his created world, we go, okay, I'm small. I'm made humble. But then God exalts us. And so let me tell you something. You are not a little bit above animals. The scripture says you're a little bit below God. You're a little bit below the heavenly beings. Now that's an infinite chasm, but recognize the scriptures are teaching you are closer to the Imago, you are closer to God than you are to the animal realm. You have been made in his image, in his likeness. You are an image bearer of God. And the tragedy is that though we are supposed to be those things, we have been broken. The statue has been corrupted. And so because us as image bearers have broken that image, the image bearer had to come. The true man, Jesus Christ, came. And in Hebrews 2, verse 6, the, psalm, the, the writer is going to pick up on this psalms and says, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and have putting everything under subjection to his feet. So in Psalms 8, we're talking about man. But in Hebrews 2, he goes, hey, I'm going to tell you about the true man, the one who's come. And he's going to say, now in everything and subjected to uh, him, he has left nothing out of his control. At the present, we don't see things that, the, that everything is in subjected to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus the image of God, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of his death, so that by grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Jesus, the true son of God, though he was positioned in God, became lowly. He took that humility of becoming a man so that we would receive back the dignity and the honor that God initially created us to have. And so when you look at him, you look at the cross, you're made humble. 
because your sin was so disgusting in the eyes of God that the only possible punishment to get you right standing in him was the brutal sacrifice physically and spiritually of his only son. That'll humble you. But then when you realize that you were loved enough by God that he would send his only son to die on your behalf, that'll make you bold. That'll return that dignity, that honor, so that we can have dominion with him forever. And so in order to do that, a problem had to be rectified, and that's sin. And that's what we're going to talk about after we take our break. So if y'all want to take a little bit of a break and come back here in about six and a half minutes. So uh, we are running a tight ship here, people. So 7.57. Okay, gang, it's uh, now 7.57. I love what Derek did. Got us on a tight schedule. That way we'll have a chance to answer more questions, hopefully. Or at least that'll give you a chance to ask more questions. All right? So uh, um, here's a room full of theologians. I got some questions for you theologians to start with. Okay, so how many verses are there in the Bible? How many verses? A lot, yeah. Anybody want to take a wild guess? 66,000, that's a little high. 15,000 is a little low. 32,000, who said that? It's a great guess. 31,102 verses. Okay, so 23,145 in the Old Testament, 7,957 in the New Testament. No wonder we like the New Testament better, okay? All right, 1,189 chapters, 929 in the Old Testament, 260 in the, uh, I'm sorry, in the Old Testament with 929, 260 in the New, okay? How about the word sin in all of its various uh, um, formations, sin, sinner, sinful, sinning, etc. How many times do you think the word sin appears in the Bible? 2,000. 2000. It's a little high. Okay, um... 656. 666. Well, that's a good guess and it's pretty close. Okay? So in the Old Testament, there are 544 times the word sin in all of its forms appears in 472 verses. In the New Testament, it's 286 times in 246 verses. So if you add those together... And uh, um, it totals 830 times in 718 verses. Okay, that's just the word sin, sinning, sinful, sinner, uh, etc. Okay? And so that's only, those words appear only in 2.3% of the Bible. How about that? So the Bible is about a lot more than just sin. But obviously, uh, uh, for it to be repeated in there, just, you know, those words for sin to be repeated 
and I'm using an English translation. I took these numbers out of the ESV, uh, if you want to check me. And uh, I encourage y'all, y'all are theologians. So be like the Bereans and check the scriptures to see if these things are, are so. Okay? So the word sin in its various forms appears in every New Testament book except five. What five books? They may describe a particular sin, but they don't have the word sin in the English translation. What five books are those? Philemon, Philemon there's a winner. Esther. Esther. No, New Testament now, just New Testament. Revelation has three uses of the word sin, which is pretty surprising. James uh, uh, has some sin in there. Jude, no. Jude's got some sin. Titus, Titus no. What? Third John's right. So we got two. Timothy, second John, we got another one. Timothy has sin all in it. First John, no. Now, here's what's interesting about 1 John. Pound for pound, chapter for chapter, 1 John has the most references to sin of any book. Um, there are 27 different times in 16 verses, um, some formation of the word sin appears in 1 John. Okay, now there are other books like Romans, uh, the word sin appears 60 times. That's not surprising. Um, when Paul's talking about salvation, he deals with the problem of sin. Okay, so uh, Romans, uh, the uh, form of sin appears 60 times in 48 verses. But think about that. That little book, 1 John, that only has five chapters, has 27 uh, uses of the word uh, sin in its various forms in 16 verses. All right, so we've named Philemon, 2nd and 3rd John. We've got two more. What's the most obvious one? Acts, Philippians, that's the most obvious one, isn't it? All about joy, okay? Um, and the last one is one that's a little surprising to me, but it's Second Thessalonians. Now, Second Thessalonians talks about the man of sin, or, or man of lawlessness is the way the ESV translates it, uh, but in the ESV, the word sin in its various forms doesn't appear, Okay. So there are eight words for sin in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, there are 12 different words, with the most frequently being uh, the word harmartia, which is the noun form, sin. Uh, and the verb is uh, um, harmartano, which is the word that means to sin. Okay? And it's not surprising, what is the doctrine of sin called? Hmm? I thought I almost heard it back here. That's a good table back there. I like y'all. Harmartiology, yeah. Uh, harmartia is the uh, noun form, and the study of harmart, uh, harmartia, the study of sin, is harmartiology. Okay? All right, so now y'all are theologians. Listen to what some of the other words, uh, other of the 12 words mean. Um, and you really get a sense for what is going on when you sin. Um, one of the uh, New Testament words means to stumble or offend. Another one means to do wrong. Here's one of my favorites. It's the word scandalizo. What, what do we get from scandalizo? Scandal, yeah. 
How about the song today? Did anybody catch the name of the song, the Hillsong song that we sang today? The Scandal of Grace. Man, what a song. Um, I went, went and downloaded it. It's a great song. Hillsong uh, put it out. I like the John Abel version better, frankly. Uh, but it's a great song because grace is scandalous. It offends, but it's also amazing in what it accomplishes. Uh, Another word means to miss the goal, to transgress, to fall, to fall away, to go contrary to law, to fall by the side, to go astray. And so in all these things, you really get from the New Testament words a sense of what sin is all about. Okay, so today we're going to be answering five questions. So what is sin? Give you a definition of sin. Where did it come from? We'll talk about the origin of sin. Um, Where did our sinful nature come from? We'll talk about the inherited nature of uh, sin. Who sins? That's when we'll start to get personal, and we'll talk about personal sins. And then finally, um, Grudem doesn't do this, but I thought it was important to talk about how do we recover from sin. You know, because I know all about sin, but I'm not quite as good at the recovery from sin. And man, that is what, if you don't take anything else away from the idea about sin, wake up for the last minute uh, when we talk about the recovery from sin, because that's what's going to be useful uh, in our walks with Christ. Okay, so we've got those five questions. All right, but one of the things I want you to do as we um, think through the doctrine of sin, and that is that we always have to keep in mind the seriousness of sin to a holy God. Let me say that again. We've got to keep in mind and keep ever before us the seriousness of sin to a holy God. And along with that, you need to keep in mind what it costs God to deal with our sin. The seriousness of sin, what it costs God, and then finally, how do we recover from sin in our lives? And you know, doing so will give us an even greater appreciation of grace, of what Christ did for us, and how God views our sin. Okay, so what is sin? How would you define it? Y'all all are experts in this. You've been doing it since you were a little two-year-old. I know, I've got a grandson who's two years old, and he already knows how to disobey. Falling short or missing the mark. Missing the mark. That's the way I did it. Um, here's uh, kind of my uh, opening slide for each section. I'll have one of these up. And if you'll pay attention to these five slides... Uh, that open each one of the different sections we're going to talk about, you will have what uh, the doctrine of sin is about. So the definition of sin is missing the mark of God's holiness. And I used uh, uh, Romans 3.23, which is a verse probably many of you know. Who can say it? I love it. Way to go. How many uh, equipped disciple grads do we have in here? Yeah, a bunch of hands go up. Well done. 
And, you know, we're going to talk about that when we get to the personal sins. We'll talk about the universal nature. But what part of for all have sinned don't we understand? Man, that's everybody. All right. So, simply put, it's missing the uh, uh, mark of God's holiness. And why is that our mark? Well, in the Sermon on the Mount, what did Jesus tell us in Matthew 5, 48? Say that again, Peter. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Okay? Now, I don't know about y'all, but I hear that, and I immediately go, good luck with that. Okay? But that's the point. You know, that's the point that Jesus was making, is that you, I, can't do that on my own. Okay? And frankly, I suspect none of you can either. We just can't do that. Um, But God can. And that's why he gives us his spirit to live within us so that we can walk by the spirit and not uh, carry out the desires of the flesh. So we can't do that, but he can. All right, so sin includes the ideas of badness. Rebellion, iniquity, going astray, wickedness, wandering, ungodliness, crime, lawlessness, transgression, ignorance, and falling away. In short, it's any defection from any one of God's standards that make up his holiness. And you know, in uh, um, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, I mean, that is his holiness. It's all of his character that makes up his glory. All right. Um, Grudem does a good job in defining it, I think. Here's his definition up on the uh, screen. It's any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. And I think it's important that we keep those three different areas uh, in mind. Another way that... uh, uh, he uh, talked about it, sins directly opposite to all that is good in the character of God. Um, it, uh, um, just as God necessarily and eternally delights in himself and in all that he is, so God necessarily and eternally hates sin. That's where God stands on it. And so it's anything that's against God's character. It's anything uh, uh, in the creature that does not express or which is contrary to the holy character of the creator, one commentator said. And I loved what uh, David said about sin, about his own sin in the Bathsheba Psalm. In Psalm 51, what did he say? He said, against you and you only have I sinned, O God. Now, He was conveniently omitting Bathsheba's husband. Um, But the bottom line is that all sin is against God, ultimately. And, you know, gang, it's incumbent upon us to understand and then to remember how terrible sin is in the sight of a holy God. Habakkuk 1.13 puts it this way. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. 
Dr. Ryrie, um, the author of another excellent theology book called Basic Theology. You've probably heard of Charles Ryrie, uh, the Ryrie Study Bible. Maybe some of you have the Ryrie Study Bible, but this is an excellent um, theology to go along with uh, Grudem's theology. Here's how he says it. He says, sin is so damaging, only the death of God's son can take it away. Sin is so damaging, only the death of God's son can take it away. And you remember how uh, John the Baptist, in, right in the beginning of uh, the book of John, in John 1, he's the first of the seven witnesses that are identified in the gospel of John who uh, identify who Jesus is. You remember how he first uh, described Christ? Well, I'll spot you the first word, behold. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's who our Savior is. And only the death of God's Son can take away sin. Okay, and so when we um, talk about the origin of the sin, we're going to be reading Ezekiel 28, 12 through 17a in just a second. But when we talk about the origin of sin, we've got to understand that, hey, God is not the author of sin. He did not sin, and he is not to be blamed for sin. I thought Grudem did a great job of making that point clear. And then he goes on to add, to blame God for sin would be blasphemy against his character. So it's not God's fault. And he also makes the uh, next point of, hey, there is no... uh, eternally existing evil power in the universe, just as there is God, eternally existing uh, force for good. That's just not right. That is dualism, and we don't believe that. We believe that sin entered the universe through a created being. And we'll get to that in just a second. Well, we'll just skip down to the next bullet. Sin originated in the angelic world between the end of creation and the temptation of Adam and Eve. Okay? That is uh, uh, Grudem's perspective on uh, when sin came around, okay? And so, where do we get all this? Well, let's open uh, your Bible to uh, Ezekiel 28, okay? And one of the things you all have to do as theologians is figure things out like this passage of who exactly is the Son of Man, Ezekiel, uh, talking about. In verse 12, it starts, Son of Man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God. So who is the king of Tyre? Is it a physical person who reigned over Tyre? Or is it a representation of an angelic being who was the king of the king of Tyre? Or was it C... Both, you know, because prophets often look out and there is a near fulfillment and there's also a far fulfillment of the prophecy, okay? That's one of the reasons that the uh, religious crowd in Jesus' day missed who he was because they just saw uh, all the things about the coming conqueror riding a white horse and Jesus just didn't fulfill that role. But they were looking over the peaks of prophecy and seeing only the coming king. He's coming in that role. It's just that he first had to 
go to the cross. Okay? So I think the answer is both as well. But you're theologians now, and you've got to figure that out. Okay? And so uh, um, as we're reading, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden. You know, there may be one uh, hint to us that is not just talking about the uh, king of Tyre. Uh, garden of God, every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, diamond, barrel, onyx, uh, jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle. Uh, anybody wearing carbuncle tonight? <laughs> yeah, I left mine at home too. Okay, so it's interesting. Um, if I counted that right, there are nine stones listed there. Okay? And what's fascinating is that if these were descriptions of Satan in all his uh, created perfection, okay? It's interesting that these are nine of the 12 stones that the high priest of Israel wore in his garment. How about that? That's a small world, okay? And craft and gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub, you know, the highest created order of angels, the cherubs. I placed you, you were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire that you walked. And now, you know, commentators speculate about what that means, but I think at the very least it means that Satan had access to the very presence of God. Okay, and continuing on, it says you were blameless in your ways, and this verse 15 is where it starts to get interesting. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. Bingo. Hello, sin. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. Here's what Ryrie says about it. He says, this is really, he's talking about Ezekiel 28:15. He says, this is really the only verse in the Bible that states exactly the origin of sin. The details of Satan's sin are specified elsewhere, but the origin is only expressed here. That's Ryrie, Basic Theology at page 163. Okay? Well, let's go look at where it's talking about uh, elsewhere. And you had the same situation um, in uh, this Isaiah passage, Isaiah 14. Turn to Isaiah 14. Once again, you have to be theologians because um, this uh, discourse is directed to the king of Babylon. And so you have that same question of, well, is this a human king of Babylon? Is it Satan or is it the human king of Babylon, and his ultimate king, Satan, the both category. Once again, I'd come down on the side that it's probably both. Okay? And so when, if we're right in that understanding of Isaiah 14, um, I think this captures the essence of Satan's sin in five I wills. Okay? Look at these I wills. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. 
And gang, as soon as Satan said, I will, there was another will in the universe that there had never been before. And um, sin was in the universe. And you mean by that, that before that, everything had always gone together with the same God, right? Everybody was in... Everybody was moving in the same direction with God's will. His will was the only will in the universe until Satan said, uh, I will. Okay? Are you with me on that? Okay. Um, I love this next slide. This is right out of Grudem. I thought this was excellent. Uh, where he talks about man's first sin being typical of sin in so many ways. Okay? So it challenged God's words as the uh, basis of knowledge. It challenged God's commands as the basis of moral standards. Think about the Garden of Eden and what the serpent said to Eve. Uh, it challenged God's authority to, make our, uh, to determine our identity. And gang, we are reaping the consequences of that even more emphatically today, as Derek just talked about, and as we read about daily in our newspapers. We have a problem in determining our identity when we separate ourselves from God. And then finally, I love this last one. Man, it just was irrational. You know, it was, you know, downright stupid. There was nothing smart about this. Uh, and ultimately, Grudel makes the point that sin is always ultimately irrational. So why do we do it? Well, I think that the Apostle Paul, for me, in Romans 7, captured, you know, the very things that I want to do, I don't do, and the things that I don't want to do, those are the very things that I do. Okay? Well, but before we get to personal sins, let's talk about inherited sin, because this helps us understand uh, the sinful state into which all people uh, have been born since Adam and Eve. Okay? All right. So another one of these title slides. We are counted guilty because of Adam's sin. And we'll take a look at Romans 5 in just a second. All right. Well, that second is here now. Uh, here we go. Who knew? All right. So let, turn in your Bibles to uh, uh, Romans 5.12. And let's just um, read through this for a second. Therefore, just as sin came into, wor- into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. You know, Adam's sin tainted all of us. For indeed, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin was not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a uh, type of the one who was to come. But uh, in the rest of this, it is fun to compare and to contrast the results of Adam's trespass versus Jesus' free gift of righteousness. And look at how um, Paul does that. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more had the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, 
much more will those who receive the abundance of grace in the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, doctrine of inherited sin, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Okay? And as we look at that, um, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but that helps us answer the question of, hey, is it fair for us to be tainted by Adam? Okay? But before we get there, um, this inherited sin has uh, uh, two aspects, okay? The first one is, um, well, let's go back. The first one, we have inherited guilt, okay? And that is that we are counted guilty because of Adam's initial sin. And it raises the question, well, how is this fair? That, hey, he was there. Um, I mean, she ate the apple. It wasn't me, Lord. Well, how is that fair? Well, um, I think Grudel makes three good points. Hey, we've also all voluntarily committed sins. We don't know what we would have done if we'd been there in the same place. And yet, I think that, um, speaking for myself and my wife, who's sitting right over here, um, I guarantee you we would have... uh, um, been deceived. We would have fallen. Okay? I mean, I think that's just uh, uh, something that we can't answer, but that's not really the issue, Grudem says. And when we um, wonder about the unfairness of being tainted by Adam's sin, I know that we are eager and uh, run to accept being imputed with life through Christ's death on the cross for us. And, you know, that's probably even more unfair. So are you with me on that? It sounds like it is unfair that we would all be tainted simply because one man sinned, but he represented all of us. And as our representative, his sin then was passed down uh, from person to person. Okay? And so... um, This is part of the idea, whoops, of inherited corruption. We have a sinful nature because of Adam's sin uh, being passed down. Um, In our natures, we totally lack spiritual good before God. And in our actions, there is nothing we can do that is good in and of ourselves. Okay? But once we have trusted in Christ and we're indwelled by his spirit, then his spirit enables us to do things that God views as good. And the issue always is going to be, what is our motivation? Is it to bring him honor and glory? Is it to bring me honor and glory? You know, I I like to say it another way. Am I going to run his offense, or am I going to run my offense? Well, I've seen what happens with my offense. And so I'm old enough now to know that I'd rather run his, but it doesn't always work out that way. Okay, And so when we talk about inheriting corruption, every facet of our being is affected uh, by our sin natures. 2 Corinthians 4.4 tells us that our intellect is blinded. Romans 1.28 tells us that our mind is debased. Ephesians 4.18 says that our understanding is darkened and separated from the life of God. 
Romans 1.21 and Titus 1.15 say that our emotions are degraded and defiled. And then finally, in Romans 6.16, we see that even our wills are enslaved to sin and stand in opposition to God. And so, you know, gang, our goose is cooked without (laughs) Christ uh, uh, stepping in and us accepting the free gift of righteousness that he provides that he might impute his life to us, his righteousness, taking our place. Okay, and so why is this important? Well, inherited sin has both a penalty and then more importantly, it has a remedy. And the penalty is spiritual death. And that spiritual death is separation from God in this life, which if it continues unchanged through life, will result in eternal or the second death that Revelation talks about. Okay, so the penalty is separation from life of God in this present life. But the, the remedy is redemption, um, which simply is a, a theological word meaning being purchased out of the slave market of sin. And that when we're done that, we're no longer uh, subject to the dominion of sin. Now, we don't realize that immediately, okay? Because we still have an old nature. Uh, But as we uh, are sanctified and as we become more like Christ in our walk with him, then we become more and more um, able to say yes to God instead of no. Okay? And so our justification deals with the penalty of sin. Our sanctification deals with the power of sin in our lives. And then ultimately, uh, our glorification will deal with the presence of sin in our lives. Okay, so the the remedy is redemption. That includes judgment on the uh, um, old sin nature, so we're no longer bound to serve sin. The old life has been crucified with Christ. And remember that death always means separation. But the old life is not going to be totally eradicated until uh, our resurrection. Either through the rapture or through um, when the dead are resurrected. Therefore, God has given us his spirit to empower us to experience victory over sin in our lives. I love this last uh, um, little bullet up here. We are separated from the dominion of sin by Christ's death. We are free from the domination of sin by the power of the Spirit. And in the words of uh, Hebrews, why would we neglect so great a salvation? That's one of the warnings of the book of Hebrews. Okay, so now on to personal sin. Here's um, our favorite verse, Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fallen short. And so it's universal in its scope. Um. I've heard sins broken down as, uh, into three categories. Overt sins, murder, things like that. Sins of the tongue, and mental attitude sins. And that probably captures just about most of them. Okay? Um, Grudem talks about are there degrees of sin. Um, and he makes the point that, hey, yes, indeed, in their consequences and in their impact on others... There are. Um, legal guilt, even a very small sin, um, makes us guilty of the entire law, um, we learn. 
but it has results in, con- in life and in our relationship with God, any sin. Uh, but you can go look at Romans, uh, uh, I'm sorry, uh, John 19.11, and see there that where Jesus is talking with Pilate, and he says, hey, the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. Grudem thinks that refers to Judas. I'm not so sure. I think it actually may refer to the, the religious leaders in Caiaphas. Okay? But y'all are theologians, so you can figure that out. Okay? All right, so um, he also talks about what happens when a Christian sins. And this is where it starts to get personal. Okay? So uh, Grudem makes the point that, hey, when we sin, our legal standing as a son or daughter of God does not change. We don't get kicked out of the family because we sin. Okay? But our fellowship with God is disrupted. And it does damage our uh, walk with Christ. Now, sometimes, frankly, uh, uh, some of the sins I've committed, um, you know, man, I have not gotten zapped immediately. Have you all ever experienced that? Where, you know, you kind of do something and... You know, you don't really realize any bad consequences from it, and you kind of go, well, hey, that wasn't so bad. So uh, it thinks you, makes you think you can do it again. Well, don't be, don't be uh, uh, surprised because God is not mocked, and we will reap what we sow. But the bottom line is that uh, uh, just because he delays the punishment doesn't mean that he is not going to deal with our sin. And any sin interrupts our fellowship with God and damages our walk with Christ. And that underscores the seriousness of this whole topic. Okay? Grudem asks a a great question. Um, Does sin in our lives affect our rewards in heaven? And to that one, I say, come back on August 28th, (laughs) and we will talk more about that, because I'm going to get the whole two hours to talk with you about eschatology and the doctrine of the end times, okay? And so it'll be a fun thing to talk about, but I've given you some verses here to read about. What are these verses all about? Anyone know? Well, when are we going to get rewards in heaven? At the judgment seat, yeah. And so these verses are all about the judgment seat. And I want you as good theologians to look for how many times sin are brought up uh, in conjunction with these passages. Okay? And we'll talk more about those later. All right, we good on that? Got a little assignment for August 28th? Um, How about the unpardonable sin? Uh, We're running a little short on time, so I'm not going to take time to play either of these videos uh, for you, but Wagner has actually addressed his view of the unpardonable sin. Okay? It it differs from Grudem's view, and I'm with Wagner on this one. Okay? Um, And you can watch either one of these Real Truth Real Quicks. Actually, you know, it's 10 minutes. Watch both of them. Um, you know, the, the supposed answer for why he did two was because 
there was so much to cover on that. Uh, I think the real answer is they forgot they had done the first one. <laughs> but you didn't hear that here, all right? You know, we're all friends, right? You didn't hear that here, okay? Hey, but they're both great. And frankly, I almost like the first one better. But I encourage you to go watch both of these because Todd in uh, four minutes in one and five or six minutes in the other gives you a great quick overview of real truth real quick about the unpardonable sin. But I loved what Grudem said about this. I can't remember who he was quoting. He said, hey, if you were worried about the unpardonable sin, well, then you're the kind of person who doesn't need to worry about the unpardonable sin, okay? Because you are concerned about your walk with Christ, all right? Okay, so unpardonable sin, go watch those. Now, let's talk, finally, this is our last topic, recovery from personal sin. And gang, um, let's take a quick step back and think about um, what we are called to as believers. And you know, the standard for us is that we are to walk in the light. 1 John 1, 7. We are to walk in the light. And the great news is that each believer can walk in the light. Now, the amount of light that each of us has may be different, but the responsibility to respond to that light and to walk um, in it is the same for all of us. And you know, the fun thing is that as we grow in spiritual maturity, then the light that we're given will increase. How about that? And as we respond to increasing light, we will receive more light. But at every stage, the requirement's the same. Walk in the light. And so who are our enemies to doing that? Well, I think there are at least three. And you know what they are. The world, Satan's system of evil that surrounds us. It encompasses everything that opposes and is opposed to Christ. But to that, we have the defenses of faith, the armor of God, the knowledge of Satan's strategies, and sobriety and vigilance, 1 Peter 5.8. The second enemy is our flesh. We've already talked about that. Our old nature inherited from Adam. There's nothing good in our flesh. Um, and it's the power of sin in our lives that sanctification uh, frees us from. Sanctification is a progressive idea. The more we walk in the light, the more light we get, and the more able we're doing it. And we're doing it not in the power of our own flesh or in our own power, but in the power of the filling of the Spirit. And so although we'll never be completely free from the influence of the flesh in our lives, we can experience victory over the flesh by walking in dependence on the Spirit. Galatians 5.16. And then finally, you know, of course, the last one is the devil. And uh, his strategy is planned, it's persistent, and it's powerful. I've got verses on each one of those. If you're interested, uh, uh, come see me afterwards. But the thing we've got to remember is 1 John 4, 4 that says that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And so I love this slide. Um, what are our weapons? We have an immense spiritual arsenal at our disposal. And it starts with the fact that Christ is making intercession for each of us. 
And so tonight, Kevin Maints, the Lord prayed for you and for me, and he lives to make intercession for us. And then we're indwelled by his spirit. We have the word of God, thing that we want to hide in our heart that we might not sin against him. Psalm uh, 119.11 says. And then finally, something that's near and dear to the heart of this church is that we have the accountability of biblical community. And Galatians 6.2 says that we're to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So the weapons we have are immense. And the issue is, will we take advantage of them? So how does a believer recover from personal sin? Well, I think uh, um, all the ED folks know, 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And then here's the bonus, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so if we do business with God about the things that we know we've done wrong, he'll wipe out the things that offend him that we didn't even know that we had done. Okay? Uh, The Greek word there is homologeo. It simply means to say the same thing. And gang, as we become more faithful in our walk with Christ, we will more and more say the same thing about our sins that God says. That's the whole idea of confession. And then you don't forget, you know, if you have something against your brother, leave your gift at the altar and go and be reconciled. Sometimes our sin have consequences that require us to uh, seek forgiveness beyond just uh, confessing them to God. This isn't a get-out-of-jail-free card. And so, of course, confession of sin, 1 John 1, 9, can be abused. But we are called to live soberly in light of it and to be willing not only to confess them to God, but James 5.16 says that we are to confess uh, things to one another. Okay? We do that in the context of community. What happens when uh, um, we suffer the consequences of uh, personal sins? And we'll close with this. Open your Bibles to uh, Hebrews 12, and let's take a quick look at... uh, what the Lord says about discipline. Hebrews twelve five starts out, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he re- receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. How about that? Part of the family. He dis- Skip down to verse 10. He disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. Gang, that's what we're called to do, to share his holiness. We cannot do that on our own, but he can as he lives his life through us. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Gang, through confession and realizing that sometimes we will suffer consequences because of our sin through the guise of divine discipline. But you remember that, hey, if you are being disciplined by God, it is simply a sign that he loves you and he has uh, something better in store for you than the way you've been living. Okay?
So five things we've talked about. The definition of sin, the origin of sin, the idea of inherited sin. We've talked about personal sin. And most importantly, we've talked about recovery from sin. Okay? And so, gang, sin is a serious subject. I'll go back to where I started. It is something that God wants us to take seriously and to do business with him. It gives us a greater appreciation, a greater gratitude for his action because it required the death of his son to deal with our sin. So, Derek, come on up here, buddy. And uh, um, y'all, uh, we've got 16 minutes left, and uh, that ought to give you time for uh, a few questions. Um, I hope they're all on uh, uh, the gender issue so that Derek has to, has to answer them all. If, if, if you've got any sin questions, then uh, um, watch out. All right, so who has a question? Uh, we stumped them. Up oh, here's one. So, uh, All right, she's going to ask a sin question. I just know yeah, it. No, actually, I'm not. And in the book, it refers to the soul and the spirit dichotomy and trichotomy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for me, so I need a little more clarity. I think that there's a separation of soul and spirit, but from what he's saying, that he thinks it's just your souls. Yeah. And so uh, we made a judgment call uh, about cover. Like every week, there's more to cover than is possibly time. Last time we met, we talked about the Trinity. Okay, we didn't cover that at any length. And so as we're going through, we we did make a judgment call. Hey, do we cover this? Do we not cover this? Um, And so for y'all who didn't hear the question, she's asking about that part in Grudem that talks about uh, whether or not man is body and soul or body, soul, and spirit, whether we are three or whether we're two. Um, And so what, what, what's that? Page 193. 193. And so, um, so he, he, he uses a lot of ink to cover that. Um, and we kind of got to the end and going, Hey, if you're a three person, if you're a two person, I I don't know how much it really distinguishes us from one another. Um, and and so we decided not to cover that because there was other topics that needed. Um, and so his, his whole argument comes down to the idea that throughout scripture, um, soul and spirit are sometimes used interchangeably and therefore, as he's kind of understanding what it means, he's saying, hey, I, as we're talking about soul and spirit, they're, they're kind of one and the same. There are certain passages that he does reference uh, where, where Paul says body, soul, and spirit, uh, all, all in a row. row. Um, and so um, I would say there is a lot of room at the table on this one. And so if you, have you all done the whole, like, center, the essentials, the convictions, the kind of... This one's like way over here, all right? Essentials, Jesus died for our sins, rose from the grave. Whether or not we're two or three, body, soul, spirit. And so it's really far out on the edge. And so, Okay, uh, so what do you believe, buddy? Um, <laughs> thank you. Um, I, I, see, I see extreme validity with both. I, I would land on the two side um, and that the spirit that's referencing uh, in Genesis 2 and then what we lost in Genesis 3 and what Jesus returned is the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. Um, and so uh, that we are body and souls. And so th- the main emphasis, though, is that we are not merely material, um, that there is a spiritual component to us. And one of the horrors of death 
is that your soul and body are ripped apart from one another. And that, is never, that was never meant to be. And so you can read in Revelation, and you might school me on this one, um, but because uh, he's written a book on Revelation, uh, uh, is that there's martyrs next to the throne of God pleading God in eternity, pleading with God to be reunited with their bodies. Um, and so that's the horror, is that, that we are embodied souls. Um, and so that, that's where I land with it. Um, but again, ask me tomorrow, and I'm like, you know what, that 3-1 is really, that's probably it. And so I'm, there's a lot of room with it, but if gun to the head, I would say, I don't care, but <laughs> there <laughs> Being the honest. truth, the truth comes Being out. Honest. Um, it's uh, good. So, so let me just clarify what I mean by that. It is good to wrestle with these things. And so it's good to wrestle with um, God's sovereignty versus man's responsibility. It's good to wrestle with things like that um, because it pushes you in. But the moment you take anything on the edge and put it in the middle and say, this is what we're going to, you know, we're going to call names. I mean, we have, we in the Christian faith need to unite more than we need to divide. Um, we will be known by how we love one another. How we, God, make them one as we are one. And so, um, again, ask me tomorrow, and I might go, you know what, that three, I'm a three. I'm a three. I'm a three person. Um, I, I just, and so I, I haven't spent a lot of time. It doesn't keep me up at night um, thinking about the three or the two, but I'll so be two. So how would you answer that? What do you think? Well, You're I a think theologian. I think it, there's validity for the fact that um, one of the things that kind of points in my head is that, so how do we distinguish our humanity, which is our thoughts, our emotions, blah, 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 from our spirit? But one of the things I'm kind of thinking through right now is that the spirit or the spiritual aspect of us is essentially the most important part of us. So therefore, whether we're soulish, which is our humanity or our flesh or whatever you want to call it, is, I mean, that's how God created us. We have that part and aspect of us. But in reality, the most essential part of us is our spirit. So I, I've kind of started to land on that. I need to be more over here, obviously because I live by my feelings and my soul. So I think that that's kind of where I'm heading. I don't think I'm completely there. Yeah. You know, um, where do you? As I grew up uh, in studying the Word, uh, uh, I was always taught body, soul, and spirit, and so I would have put myself in the trichotomy uh, camp. Um, I definitely land where uh, Derek does in the sense that, man, I have not invested any energy in trying to figure out whether I still believe that or not. Um, I think that there are, uh, are good arguments both ways. Um, Grudel makes the point that there's no 20, 20th century defense of the trichotomy position. Hmm. But, hey, just because people hadn't been writing about it recently doesn't mean that it's necessarily wrong. Okay, There's some, a lot of great uh, uh, biblical scholarship that was done in the 18th and 19th century. Okay, so don't discount it just for that. But I would say that I would strongly come down in the undecided camp right now. Okay? Amen. Um, 
But, you know, hey, these are good things to wrestle with, but I, I certainly uh, second uh, Derek's approach that this shouldn't be stuff that divides us. Yeah. Uh, but um, if you want to invest the time into reading the scriptures for that and making a decision for yourself, then you should. Uh, um, uh, I was always taught that the, our spirit uh, was the place where the Holy Spirit plugged in. Um, you know, I don't know. I can't give you verses for that, but um, it's something that's worthy of wrestling with. Yeah. Well, here's why I think it's important, and it's going to land with what I always land on. But that is that pro-gate theology side would say that your soul is the most important part of you. And therefore, we need to pay attention to our feelings and our attractions and our desires. And it eliminates the spirit part that God commands us to be the most important part of us. And that's why I wrestle with it. Yeah. yeah. Because, you know... And that's a great reason yeah. to wrestle with Absolutely. it so that you can give an account for the hope that's within you yeah. uh, to your friends. Absolutely. And I would say, too, regardless of how you're divi- dividing them up, um, whether you're three or two or, or whatever it is, most of them, even, and this is why in theology it's so important to ask, what do you mean by this? Because the components like, are probably going to be the same. It's just whether or not you say, hey, this is all under the category of soul or this is, all, or this is split between soul and spirit. Um, and so the components might be similar as we're thinking through it, um, but we're just defining the terms differently. Um, so again, I think it's great to dwell on it, to think through it, to um, have that hope in you to be able to articulate it. Um, um, and at the end of the end of the day, bring it back to Christ. And a lot Thank of godly uh, scholars who would hold to the trichotomous view. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, down through the ages. All right. What other Room sort of table. questions? Room at the table. Yeah. All right. Yes. Um, come on. Hey, we're going to stick around up here until all your questions are answered. So if yeah. y'all have to leave, that's no big deal. But Derek and I will be here. So we want you to leave with no questions okay. pending. Um, okay, and so you mean, do you think that... Well, I think on that you have to take the whole counsel of Scripture, okay? And so in the Old Testament, uh, obviously uh, God, in giving the law to Moses, um, included capital punishment for certain offenses, Okay, and so Old Testament, New Testament, God's the same, and so He has not changed His uh, um, um, character in any way. Just because He's, um, we now have the New Testament, and so I would defend the idea of capital punishment on the basis that God is the same, and that when you take a life, then you have forfeited the right to continue.
Well, you're asking the wrong guy about Grudem being wrong because I think Grudem's wrong on several things. <laughs> okay? But we're taking, we're only, the state first is the one wielding the sword. And the state is making the decision after, you know, it has fairly considered the evidence, heard the testimony, etc. And a jury has made the determination in our system that uh, this person should forfeit his life for having done something that cost someone else their lives. Uh, and, you know, obviously... Um, just down through the scriptures, you see throughout that uh, um, God in certain circumstances requires the life of people for doing things that, you know, he believes are wrong. And so I would say that even today that uh, there is a biblical defense for capital punishment. Yeah. Uh, there is a real truth real quick on this very topic. Well, first, um, the system is administered by men is never perfect. Yeah. Okay? And so we certainly should be careful uh, as the state uh, not to wield the sword um, ill-advisedly. Um, you need to, um, and I think the history of our jurisprudence shows that uh, we have executed people wrongfully. And so we have to take every precaution uh, to ensure that that does not happen. But, you know, I still personally believe, and Derek, I'd like you to weigh in on this yeah. since this is really your topic. Um, but I, 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 although it kind of cu- cuts across into both, you know, can you commit a sin for which uh, your life is required? And I think God's answer is that yes, because there is such thing as the sin unto death where he says that, hey, you have used up your time here on earth where you are no longer useful to me and I'm going to bring you home even though you're my son or my daughter. Yeah. Jump in here, buddy. Yeah, so I would say two things to that. Um, Just to jump on uh, with what Bobby said. Uh, The Noahic covenant, which God said to Noah after the flood, is still binding. Um, And so what I mean by that is this. So the Noahic covenant is, hey, I'm never again going to destroy the earth through water. He's going to do it through fire, but never again through water. But a part of the Noahic covenant actually deals with capital punishment. And it comes back to an image of God issue. Um, and so uh, Genesis 9, 6, this is a part of the Noahic covenant. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God, um, for in the image of God has God made man. And so the severity of taking a human life, God has said, uh, deserves capital punishment. And so that's thought one. Thought two is that God has ordained government, uh, government to, like, like Bobby said, to wield the sword. And so I've, I have two good friends of mine that are, that are cops in law enforcement. And I've talked to them about this sh- issue uh, of how do we approach this as believers? Because in my heart, I go, man, life in prison, maybe they'll repent. Maybe they'll come back to the Lord. Maybe, you know, that, that, that we have prison ministries. We can go. And, and as we walk through it, um, both of them very theologically minded have pointed to this passage and saying, um, just like Bobby just said, hey, there is a sin that leads unto death. 
And, and God, in order to preserve humanity, has, has said, if you're killing someone in my image, then the rightful punishment, uh, physical punishment, consequence, is your life. Um, and so Noahic covenant, still binding. Um, and uh, the government has, that God has uh, given the government, as I believe Romans says, to restrain evil uh, within our midst. Um, and so, um, and as Bobby said, every human institution is not perfect, um, but God has ordained those two things. I hope that was your easiest question. <laughs> okay. Hey, um, great real truth real quick on that. <laughs> yeah, that you can email Todd Wagner. at T. Wackno. Uh. <laughs> so he, he talks about, I was just making sure I'm understanding it correctly, but he talks about equality in personhood and importance, but then, but I guess that's only for those two things when it comes to authority or not equal, or like, Authority, yes, authority within the confines of, of marriage. Yeah, and so she's asking the difference between the authority and distinction, um, correct? And that it feels like because of distinction. Um, to respect everyone's time, it is 9 o'clock. Technically, it's 9 one. Thank you for that one minute. Um, and so if you need to head out, please feel free to do so. We will continually answer questions. If this question right here interests you, you can stick around. But after this question, we'll unplug and we'll just hang out up here. Is that cool? Yeah, and so don't leave with uh, questions Exactly, exactly. Um, and so, um, so the question is between equality and distinction and how just on the mere fact that we are distinct, it doesn't feel like we're equal. Is that the question? At first I was like, well, how is that equal? Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I'm, I'm going to bring it back to the Trinity and say that the Father, Son, and Spirit are co-equal, um, uh, unified perfectly, and yet they hold distinct roles. Um, and so they all willfully, joyfully, wonderfully do it. And so just because Jesus um, is in a role of submission does not mean that he is any less God. Um, and so, in, 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 so bring that down now to humanity, uh, namely within the confines of marriage. Uh, before God, my wife and I are, are equal in personhood. I'm not greater than her. She's not less than me. Um, we're equal in um, re, uh, responsibility before him, uh, but we have distinction in how we interact with one another. So just like the son has a distinct role within the Godhead, the, the woman has a distinct role within the marriage, just like this, the, Jesus has a distinct role in his relationship to the church. I, as a husband, have a distinct role in, in my relationship to my spouse. So I don't know if that helps. Fun, fundamentally, um, you know, we all are um, heirs with Christ. And, uh, um, you know, man, that's where we hang out. And the fact that we have different roles in different situations... Um, you know, um, that's uh, simply uh, the way God set it up. Um, but 
the fundamental difference uh, or the fundamental distinction does not impact the fact that we are both sons and daughters of of Christ as we belong to him. And the same thing is true of those who are not believers. Um, They share the image of God. They are created in the image of God um, um, jointly. Does that make sense? A way to maybe think about it is think of a think of a f- football team or it's hockey right now, so think of a hockey team. Um, different different positions, all on the same team. Um, yeah, yeah. Or I think you you did say something earlier, like like so our role is kind of like it, uh, is as the son and submit to the father's word, and then so men's role will be like Christ is to the church. Yes, Ephesians so five. Those two roles are like equal importance. Absolutely. We're manifesting Christ differently, and so, and so, where in the marriage relationship, I am called to love my wife as Christ loved the church. Do I do it perfectly? Yes. Now, I'm sure, <laughs> joking, joking. She's right here. You can ask. No, I do not. But that is the call in my life. It is a high, high, high call. In fact, so much so that Rob Barry, the Plano equipping, or excuse me, the Plano community director, um, anytime there's a marriage dispute he looks straight at the husband first and goes, hey, just like God looked at Adam first before he, he goes, hey, you're, you have such a high call. You did something wrong, bro. You know? <laughs> and so men are called to sacrifice their time, energy, talents in order to exalt their wives, to, to, to pour their life into them. Uh, women are called to uh, place their life underneath that loving relationship. Um, and so... The son places the women his who life. are married. Women who are married. Thank you. Women who are married. Um, and that was a point. I don't know if I made it or not, but we're talking within marriage. Um, and so women are not supposed to submit to all men. They're supposed to submit to their husband. Um, and so um, linking underneath, just like the son links under the role and direction of the father. So we both manifest Jesus differently. And the roles are equally valuable. Yes. In the plan of God. And God values them equally.